1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan LeBell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mauro José Caraccioli to discuss his new book, Writing the New World, The Politics of Natural History in the Early Spanish Empire, published by the University of Florida Press in 2021. Is natural history a genre of political thought? What do we miss about the substance of political ideas when we discuss the study of nature? Writing the New World demonstrates how the natural historical writings of chroniclers, explorers, and missionaries helped to lay out a distinct set of empirical foundations for modern political thought. Dr. Carcioli connects scientific, historical, religious, and political ideals to show how 16th century Spanish natural history of the so-called New World was deeply political. Political theorists focus on empire, racial hierarchy, conquest, and colonization, but Dr. Caraccioli cautions not to ignore the interplay between empire, faith, and the experiences of new world environments that shaped imperial Spain's early efforts to shape culture and politics. That natural history context is essential to fully understand the context of early modern political thought. Caraccioli uses natural history texts written by early Spanish missionaries to create, quote, the first work of political theory that accounts for New World exploration and evangelicalization as a dual science of domination. The intersecting analysis of the ecological, political, religious, and historical makes this book an important one for the 21st century. Dr. Mauro Jose Caraccioli is an assistant professor of political science and core faculty in the Alliance for Social, political, ethical, and cultural thought aspect at Virginia Tech, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here today.
1: So this is a really complex book, and there's a lot to unpack in the argument, but let's start by situating listeners in the world that you're exploring. Who wrote natural history texts in the 16th century, and and what kind of travel did they do to collect these observations?
0: Excellent, excellent question. And um, I think it's a really central question to to also talk about, I think, who wrote this book <laughs> in, in that it, to talk about me. Um, so I, the, to answer the question, um, you know, natural history is a genre uh, of inquiry that many of us who either study the history of ideas or are uh, savvy in historical approaches, are familiar with simply because of its role in the Greco-Roman world, right? Kind of a foundational uh, form of knowledge production uh, from Pliny uh, to Alexander, uh, Aristotle to uh, a whole swath of medieval thinkers. Darwin. Darwin, uh, right, right. And, and we, we mostly are familiar with perhaps the Darwinian, Kind of uh, explorations of natural history, more as sort of a natural philosophy as well, right? If we if we kind of trace it back to to prominent other prominent English thinkers like Locke and Bacon, um, in the context that I uh, I'm thinking about this question, uh, natural history was part of a bigger uh, quote unquote Renaissance uh, tradition across European universities that happened to find its way into the curriculum of a generation of imperial agents, of uh, religious missionary thinkers who were foundational in some of the first generations of accounts that came from the New World back to the European continent. Um, When we think about natural history texts, uh, scholars, historians will often include Um, uh, figures like uh, Columbus and and, the conquistador Hernan Cortes in that, you know, they were sort of trying to kind of make sense of the wonders and uh, and indeed inverted way in which the Americas resembled or didn't resemble um, uh, the realities on the European continent. When I think about natural history texts, I'm literally thinking about the catalogs, about the ethnographies, and about the long treatises uh, by figures who not only sought to account for a wide variety of flora and fauna, but most importantly, they tried to make sense of how the peoples who were here in the Americas made sense of flora and fauna. Um, And in that sense, uh, the kind of natural history that the thinkers that I'm focusing on in this book were doing resembles the kind of natural history that a Pliny or an Aristotle were doing, and, and indeed that Part of the argument of the book is that what we find in these 16th century writings coming from the New World are the beginnings of a more scientific, a more modern, if you will, conception of political theorizing on the ground.
1: You you use the term wonder, uh, especially spiritual wonder, throughout the book. You just used it now, and you write that scientific activity in the New World was quote linked with a spiritual wonder that theorized the possibilities of a future colonial society. And sometimes you talk about, about this as a mirror, you know, so that, so that we see our understandings of nature through, through this. So talk a little bit about spiritual wonder and how it helped Spanish writers make sense of the landscapes and the people that they found in the Americas you know, and how this gives us this richer portrait of imperial formation, which I I think is one of the major points of of this case study. And and I really want you to unpack, because I think it's fascinating throughout the book, you know, whether spiritual and wonder can even be separated in in this context.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a good uh, question to kind of take a couple of steps back and talk a little bit about how I arrived at this question. Um, So I think like, like perhaps the, your listeners who who are trained as political theorists, um, I, uh, you know, came through a, a very large kind of mainstream disciplinary PhD program in political science at the University of Florida, where we were taught broadly to to leverage our various interests and our various strengths. And so it was the kind of program, right, where we have a hodgepodge of courses in epistemology and research design and data analysis, and of course, in political theory. Um, in that particular course... Uh, which was actually led by, um, uh, probably a mutual colleague of us, Dan O'Neill, uh, at the university of Florida. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted, uh, to study as a political theorist. Uh, so, you know, we, we read big texts and focused on big disciplinary debates, but part of why I wanted to do a PhD to begin with was to sort of find something of myself, um, in the work that I was doing. And perhaps like most of us, um, I found very little of myself in a lot of the literature <laughs> that that we we study and that we see as central to a particular iteration of the field, of the subfield, and of the discipline of political science more broadly. And, in, and after a few kind of heart-to-heart conversations with, with Dan, you know, he sort of came to a kind of an aha moment for me, and he was sort of like, well, you know, Mauro, you speak Spanish. Why don't you think about ways that you can kind of leverage your strengths in languages and languages and think about other things? Um, and that seemed at the time like a kind of obvious question. But, uh, you know, when thinking a little bit more about what I wanted to study Um, And what was available in political theory, I had to kind of think a little bit more strategically about what was available. So I didn't want to be a traditional Latin American politics scholar, which is something more akin to perhaps the field of comparative politics. I wanted to do something with political theory and specifically with this thing we call the history of political thought. Uh, And the history of political thought as a kind of contextualist oriented approach, thinking about uh languages and styles and the uh, different conflicts that thinkers over time were engaged in through the written word. And I came across the writings of, of Anthony Pagden that many of, of your listeners are probably familiar with as somebody who straddles the fields of history, but also work in political theory. And I devoured kind of Pagden's work and, and as and as important as that was to a certain side of me in thinking about questions of empire, thinking about questions of languages and translation, um a lot of Pagden's work left for me a kind of a void about what did the first generations of thinkers who traveled to the Americas actually experience? Um, so the kind of seeds of wonder were, were genuinely in the wonder of like, hey, how come all of these people are talking about you know indigenous communities and they're talking about who's a human being and what counts as civilization? And yet empirically, we know so little from their writings about what did it actually look like? Um, and that led to kind of dabbling in sort of other fields. I read, kind of, I happened to stumble upon the work of, of the popular science writer Charles Mann, a book uh, called 1491, that synthesized uh, droves of archaeological and ethno historical data that even in the 1990s and 1980s were not available in an English language kind of context. And after thinking a while about how do I put together the questions of, the empirical realities of what explorers found in a new world with my interest in political theory I discovered that many of these, uh, many of the writers of the first generations of explorers to the Americas that were producing texts to be consumed back in European courts were actually missionaries. They were missionaries of the Dominican variety, if we think about perhaps the most famous of them, Bartolomé de las Casas. Uh, but there were also mi- uh, missionaries from different orders. Um, some of them were from immersive uh, orders that worked with grounded communities, like uh, Bernardino Sagaun of the Franciscan order. And then in later decades, um, we found more kind of prominent figures who were well-connected in the European uh, intellectual networks, like José de Acosta, who was part of kind of the Jesuit order. And so this question about, you know, how come it was religious missionaries who were mostly writing about these things in the first hundred years of Spanish empire, with the question of how come we don't read any of these people in political theory normally ended up driving a lot of these questions, not just about how certain traditions were formed in the 16th century and how as historians of political thought, we understand them today. But they were also, for me, a reflection of an ongoing tension in how scholars in the U.S. think about Latin America with the kinds of social science lenses and concepts that we tend to employ. Um, So much of social science, of course, is about trying to take the whole spectrum of of human experiences and, and, you know, codify them into ways that we can uh, operationalize them and turn them into concepts that we can understand reality, reality empirically. Um, and yet religion is sort of this confounding variable that we always kind of think about it as being central to Latin American history and experience, whether it's Catholicism or, or, or resurgent trends in evangelicalism today. Um, but no one really dug into, or very few people dug into kind of the writings of religious figures and how might a religious worldview fit into the practical demands first of learning about communities, but also playing a really important role in the formation of empire and specifically a kind of spiritual conquest as historians describe it, that could lay the foundations for how a kind of settler colonialism would, would go about in the aftermath of military conquest.
1: And, and let me uh, back you up a little bit, just because I think it's so, uh, um, so everybody knows it because you've been in the weeds so long i mean these people are there because in fact the missionaries were moving all around the world i mean it's not just happening in the americas it's happening in china it's happening in india so so there's a reason why part of this is coming from missionaries because it's not just like the conquistadors that show up it's no, it's it it is the the these different Uh, Christian orders that also end up on the ground. And one of the things that you do so well in the book is to make clear various kinds of pluralisms. So you never talk about the indigenous people as all the same, because in fact they they find very, very different cultures. And then there is no they, because in fact there's a real difference between the Dominicans and the Jesuits and the the various types of people who show up in catalog. And I think that's actually one of the things I appreciated so much about the book is that is that nice um, uh, uh, care that you have to the nuances Uh, it's it you are talking about a big category imperial spain but you try to show that there's a lot of variation in there um you've already touched a, a little bit on this Uh, talking about Pagden and kind of where your work comes from, but but let me re-ask the question in a slightly different way to focus you on what the discipline looks like Mm -hmm. right now. So there has been a lot of attention paid to Imperial Spain's conquest and the type of cultural and political and economic practices that they, and I'll use the they for a minute, tried to impose on the various indigenous peoples that they found. Tell us a little bit about what this literature looks like. I know there's not, you know, as you say, you came to it from political science, political theory where there wasn't much, but there's also scholarship in other disciplines. So sort of tell us a little bit about where you're coming from, what the literature looks like, and then what it is that you're adding to this body of research.
0: Excellent set of questions.
1: Most of what I
0: know uh, and most of what I what I was able to work through in order to write this book um, would have been impossible without the uh, general field seminar on colonial Spanish America taught by uh, Professor Ida Altman uh, of, of, of the history department um, at the University of Florida, who, uh, as an ethno historian, um, uh, Professor Altman also uh, did a lot of work looking at minority communities in, across the Atlantic, not just sort of thinking about women in the Atlantic. Atlantic in the 16th century, but also thinking about um, uh, uh, Jewish uh, expat and converso communities, so converted Jews um, in the Spanish empire. And that attention allowed uh, me only even through that sort of one class that um, that seminar that I studied with her to realize that most of the questions that I was interested in for a dissertation in political theory had been covered and had in fact, you know, had been dealt with extensively in this other subfield that we could call kind of like colonial Spanish American history, or some people call it colonial Latin American literature. Right. Um, In that sense, I want to be very clear, right. That I think a lot of the interventions I'm making in this book are very much for a political theory audience an audience situated, say in political science and trying to create a dialogue between the significant work made in uh, these fields, whether they're about literature or whether about what we call ethnohistory, history um, and what a difference it could make in, in kind of the way political theorists think about the history of empire specifically, right? So, so the question, right, has a really important set of components there in that um, a lot of the work that I was looking at in preparation both for kind of secondary research, but also some archival research um, really points to how central the colonial Spanish-American experience was to the formation of various kinds of ideologies, right? Ideologies and epistemologies because so much of the experience after conquest of the new world was this constant sense of competition between intellectuals in the new world with European intellectuals to the point where, as the historian uh, Jorge Cañizares Esguerra famously writes um, in a 2001 book called How to Write the History of the New World, uh, this this was a formative dividing point in where we trace the beginnings of the so-called Enlightenments across Europe, right, where that there is a kind of Hispanic Enlightenment happening um, in the 1700s, um, except that it's not just happening in Europe, it's happening all across the Americas as well and yet as, you know, Political theorists or even historians, we normally don't get to think about that or or even hear about that unless you happen to have somebody in your department or in your community that's thinking about kind of the Latin American experience, right?
1: Well, and I, I think I, I'm uh, going to interrupt you for just a second. I think what, what but what's really interesting about the book, like everything you said, is obviously true. You just said it, but you know, there's a couple of points in the introduction where you talk about Quentin Skinner, and actually, that was the kind of like, oh wait, that is exactly what he's doing. This is this is this isn't. In many ways, this is exactly what we have come to be accustomed to in the history of political thought. How can you read an idea out of context? How can you read Locke talking about famine without understanding what was going on? So in very Skinnerian way, you are looking at the origins, the contextualizing these ideas, because we can't understand them in a vacuum. And natural history is the context that you think. is, is, has been crucially left out. So, I I mean, unless I'm getting you wrong there, but I, so in in some ways it's very revolutionary and in some ways it is very, very conservative what you're, what you're doing. Like the missionary writings are contributing to this emerging enlightenment and we're missing, as we're reading uh, some of these statements about emerging enlightenment, we're, 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 we're missing where they're coming from.
0: Yeah, and I would say it's equally, uh, it's equally kind of provocative in that, it, without a doubt, all of the figures that I'm writing about, even kind of the most prominent of of uh of advocates for Indian justice like Las Casas, are also engaged in a kind of a conquest, right? They're engaged in a, in a, in a in a battle for the souls of indigenous peoples and and the cultivation of these souls for some kind of new hybrid society that could kind of potentially reflect the changes that are happening demographically. But it's still one that aspirationally these missionaries want to be in charge of right or at the very least want to have that have it under their purview um, even as they're learning and encountering and maybe even uh, becoming more flexible in their preconceptions as they learn through through the indigenous communities that they're a part of um, uh, what their world look like and I think that's sort of really important about the follow the other part of the question that you initially asked me about kind of where political theorists are today Um, I'll confess and I've actually said this before other uh, contexts and, and, and podcasts that, that I've been asked to talk about the book. Um, if I had to start writing this book today, it would be very different than, than when I started writing it first as a dissertation and then revising it. In the last 10 years alone, the attention that the field of political theory has, played to, uh, has placed on native history On indigenous histories, both in a North America, primarily in a North American context, but a little a little bit more into a kind of Spanish American context has been astounding astounding. And I would also add that the amount of uh, attempts that folks who are situated, say, in Spanish programs or even in colonial Spanish American history programs are doing for interdisciplinary projects. Focusing on uh, various cultures of legal pluralism, focusing on a, how ideologies uh, around extractivism traveled across the Atlantic and up and down uh, uh, the Americas, uh, is totally different than what I experienced even in just 10 years ago, right? And so I think the field of political theory today, especially with regards to contributions from indigenous peoples to our understanding of, of the world that we've created, um, is far better positioned than I thought it was. Uh, ten years ago, when I started writing this, right? Um, I still think, as I kind of try to make a case in the book, one of the big challenges that the field place, uh, faces is its linguistic limits. Right? It's kind of anglophonic, you know, if not dominant, certainly a kind of a, a, a bias sometimes in terms of sort of what are the sources that are are legitimate for the study of the of, of the context in which we we produce knowledge and. Um, but even in the short time that this book has been published, right, I've seen more work dealing with uh, indigenous grounded communities in the Spanish Empire, I've seen more work doing comparative kind of political analysis of prominent figures in the Republican era of the Spanish, um, of Spanish America with uh, figures in the early Republican debates around in the United States. And so I think, I think there's, it's, it's kind of a, in the, in the Skinnerian sense, I think we're living through a moment where people are beginning to do a bit more of their own thinking for themselves and really beginning to move away just from whatever someone thinks are the big debates that students should be trained in to really thinking and digging into questions that are important for them, but also important for the context that we create around thinkers.
1: A quick personal anecdote. When I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago um, in the early 90s and thinking about dissertation project and was asked about my languages, and I said, well, I took Spanish. And they're like, that's that's useless. <laughs> that's that's not a language of political theory. You need German or French. And um, anyway, it was sort of so it's nice to know that at least that there's been some change. But I do think that people are not thinking. I don't. I think they they think very much about the 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 quote unquote new world from the perspective of the the Anglo project. Um, but that wasn't the case for the people that people tend to read. Mm-hmm. Like you, you know, you mentioned taking the theory class. Obviously, like Locke is there. Maybe mm-hmm. not Bacon, but definitely Locke. And and you open the book with an example from Jose de Acosta Acosta's uh, this is his late sixteenth century trip to to Lima Peru, I knew just a little bit about de Acosta because Locke relies on him and you know and and he has the book on his shelf so I guess what I'm wondering if you could communicate to everybody when you're talking about these texts how many of these are texts that were. Well known in their time, nobody would have needed to have explained this to Locke, but and how much of these are texts that were more obscure, harder for you to find? Like, how did you determine which texts uh, would be would be part of this, and 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 how widely known are they?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a great question. I think, especially for folks um, who maybe you know in the kind of graduate student phase where sort of they're thinking methodologically about these choices. Uh, I think when the book uh, or the inception, uh, when when the project was initially kind of proposed, eh, I was thinking of looking at uh, only three kind of missionary figures, right? Two of them, one of them would be the most well-known, of course, Las Casas, eh, and also thinking about um, Sagaun because uh, Bernard, Bernardino de Sagaun features prominently, for instance, in the work of um, Svetlán Todorov uh, in his famous book, Co- Conquest of the Other. Uh, and the third would be Acosta because Acosta was kind of like a novelty to me, right? Having seen his name come up a couple of times in, in some of Pagden's work and a little bit in um, Cañizares' guerra's work, this, this other historian I mentioned. Uh, and then, uh, as they famously said, and, and uh, I don't know if this is going to fly, but um, as, as one of my professors famously said to me, you know, uh, uh, work is the cure for bullshit. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, when I did some time at the John Carter Brown Library in Providence, kind of looking through some sources, um, I had the real, real uh, great pleasure of working with uh, uh, the resident historian, resident librarian there named Ken Ward. And he kind of gave me sort of a, a lay of the land about how, you know, yeah, there's sort of published manuscripts, manuscripts that circulate in ersatz mode, manuscripts that get translated. But one of the distinguishing features of 16th century from Spanish, uh, colonial Spanish America is many manuscripts that didn't make it to publication until several hundred years, some of them which are lost, some of which uh, were censored. By royal authorities, because the contents were perceived to either be, you know, too problematic to make sense of certain immediate political goals that the empire had, uh, or which just were impractical to kind of, um, you know, publish and disseminate. And the most famous of these, at least in my view, is uh, uh, the manuscript, uh, kind of labeled the Florentine Codex. Um, which uh, its, its author, Bernardino de Sagaun, originally titled a, a Universal History of the Things of New Spain, which is a massive thousands upon thousands of page sets of folios, right? Uh, that cover uh, literally an ethnography, uh, a universal history of the peoples of the, of the Mexico Valley, the Nahua peoples that resided there, right? Um, so I think the question of like, you know, uh, when I'm talking about these texts, who knows about them, this will vary according to kind of where folks may be situated in different fields, right? So many people know the writings of Las Casas, you know, because of his sort of polemics against the Spanish empire. Very few people in political science might know the works of Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo, who was actually the official royal historian, right? Whose task it was to kind of write the history of these early encounters, and had a platform to get them published directly, and had the favor of the crown, and and became and was for by, by many regards the most important Spanish thinker of the early 1500s across Europe. Um, he and Las Casas were frenemies, and Las Casas personally saw uh, his own efforts as counter uh, countering kind of the things that Oviedo was writing. Um, not so much in in the specific contents, because Oviedo too is engaged in a practice of natural history of catalog of describing, of illustrating, but in kind of the implications of what those findings uh, would be for how Spaniards should relate to indigenous peoples, right? With Oviedo espousing kind of very traditional tropes about uh, the backwardness and the monstrousness of indigenous peoples and how they need they need to be subdued. And Las Casas having this more kind of Edenic-like response where he he sees indigenous peoples as, as having no fault in any of these conflicts and indeed as being almost untouched like children that should be brought under the sort of patronage of the Spanish Empire. Um, the middle kind of chapters of the book are interesting because they each take on a figures who... Um, Uh, might be known to certain uh, historians or even political theorists, but who didn't publish in their time, right? And the two figures in particular here are uh, Bernardino de Sagaun who compiles this Florentine Codex over the course of 30 years. But another one was um, the imperial doctor, uh, protomedico is the technical term that they used in Castilian, uh, Francisco Hernández de Toledo, who was uh, appointed by Philip II in 1570 to lead the first official royal botanical expedition to um, New Spain or, or what we would call Mexico, right? And he spent seven years there, uh, thousands upon thousands of folios and illustrations of um, pharmacological research especially that would fundamentally shape the history of medicine in Europe and yet whose writings were stored uh, in the library, uh, the Imperial Library at Escorial for almost 60 years and many of which didn't survive a major fire that broke out of, of, this, of this tower which in they were held, right? Uh, and the book ends with someone like Acosta, who um, his position as a kind of uh, Jesuit leader allowed for his 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 magnum opus, uh, La Historia Natural y Moral de las Indias, to be not only published immediately in 1590, as soon as it was compiled, but even translated into multiple languages uh, within a couple of decades of its publication across Europe, right? In English and in French especially, these this particular treatise forming a very important part to the formation of figures like John Locke and Francis Bacon uh, as they sought, as these figures sought a more a, a not only empirical account of the, the contents of the new world, but who were also interested in these kind of psychological functions, these kind of comparative functions across societies of how people understood history and how they position themselves in relation to major transformations. So kind of who gets what published and where is a really interesting substratum of the book that I wish I, wish I would have spent a lot more time kind of actively writing about, but I, you could write an entire book just on this question of, of, uh, of dissemination of the of the texts.
1: I, th- I think it's it's key in every single book what not to include. And <laughs> what's very nice about this book is that it reads very, very clearly. It's, it's a complicated argument at the start, and you make very clear that there's multiple layers of the argument. I mean, you're talking about very general things like narrative formation and empire. And then you're also talking about something very, very specific in a very specific case and, and also trying to convince us of how natural history has been has been woven into the political. So there's a lot happening in the book. And I actually think if you'd introduced that, it, it might have been a bridge too far. You have already done some of this. But this is also a book where the argument is actually told in the chapters. And that's not always the case. So I I... I Listeners know I don't tend to do chapter by chapter, but I actually think it kind of helps here. So I, I want to take you to the first chapter, which is about narratives of conquest and the conquest of narrative. And here, what you're trying to 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 deal with is 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 how it is these literary forms and tropes are inherited from the Spanish state, and and what happens as these naturalists are, 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 are writing. Um, and so, again, you can't summarize everything, but the really short version of how it is that these stories get deployed by the 16th century naturalists um, from that chapter.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think the short version begins with the kind of foundational myth of imperial Spain, which is this battle... Uh, this uh, seven centuries long campaign that is uh, captured under the label La Reconquista, right, the reconquest, Um, which is kind of a a post facto, uh, ex post facto label that um, uh, 19th and and 20th century historians applied, Spanish historians applied to this period of cultural warfare where um, the two kind of biggest kingdoms of, of Christian Spain, right, join forces and, and bring every other principality to, to take back in their mind uh, territories that were um, uh, conquered and managed by different Moorish kingdoms, right, uh, through the rise of the Islamic Golden Age in the, in the um, late uh, 7th century and into the 8th century, right? Um, uh, these various Moorish caliphates made it all the way to the south of France, and and created systems of coexistence between uh, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim communities. That, in the eyes of, of of at least the most fanatical of uh, the Christian principalities, was a, was a no, was no good, right? And so there are all these stories about how the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabel, um, in in. Uh, 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 just just before 1492, right, is, is the heralding of, of kind of this providential mission that um, coincides not only with the fall of the last of these Moorish caliphates in January 1492, but also with uh, the, the, the bestowing of permission to this Genoese sailor Uh, Christopher Columbus to do his travels and also the formation of a kind of a police state or a police mechanism in uh, on the Iberian Peninsula that we call the the Spanish the the Inquisition to kind of precisely root out not just uh, professed Jews or Muslims but also kind of possibilities of converted Jews and Muslims this kind of renewed attention to religion being sort of a cementing feature of a potential nation state. Uh, all of the figures that I studied in, in this book in some form or another um, are products of the intellectual kind of university system that is uh, being created outside of this or alongside the state apparatus right so many of their stories either they directly participate they, they had ties to folks who per- directly participated in these wars against the Moors or it became part of kind of the broader institutional foundational myth of what they were there to do to begin with right now each of these, Each of these thinkers could be a book on itself, right, to think about how this cultural landscape of um, the reconquest feeds into their intellectual upbringing. But at the very least, from my vantage point, it's one of the major kind of cultural narratives that uh, historians kind of think about when we're trying to understand how come imperial Spain turned out the way it did. And how are, how are some of the, the, the practices and rituals of warfare on the Iberian Peninsula reproduced in in the New World, right? So, you know, two big books that do that are um, Patricia Seed's Ceremonies of Possession. Uh, um, and, and there's another uh, wonderful text called Butterflies uh, Will Burn, all about kind of these, these various cultures and logics of domination, of military conquest, and how they travel from the Iberian Peninsula to the New World. Um I, hadn't, I didn't see anybody doing that with other kinds of intellectual trends and cultures. And so I was curious, again, in the spirit of wonder, right, um, to what extent we could latch on narratives about scientific inquiry, about the study of nature in the Iberian world with those first attempts to do science, to practice natural history in the new world. Ironically, my kind of intellectual inspiration for this isn't necessarily a European or even a Spanish um, theorist. Uh, It's an American theorist. It's the environmental historian William Cronin who kind of talks about conceptions of nature, narratives about nature being reflections about the moral values that we imbue into our relationship with the land. And I use Cronin, uh, uh, perhaps not unproblematically, as a vehicle to kind of think about what did missionary work look like, not just theologically, but also empirically? And how did various conceptions about nature in the new world get filtered through this lens uh, uh, that in many occasions was simply about good and evil? about the presence of God in the landscape, or the absence of God in the landscape, and therefore also the presence of God. This put me kind of also into thinking a lot about a lot of um, thinking with a lot of literature that was literally about uh, the practice of demonology, and how religious intellectuals from the 13th century onwards, Uh, were working to root out the devil, so to speak, whether it was in their search for witches or in their conception that landscapes were often uncontrollable and dangerous. And that was a reflection of kind of satanic powers residing within them. Not the kind of empirical science that we're used to thinking about today, but um, if we have time, I, I, I actually see many of those echoes in the ways that folks, some folks talk about climate change and about natural disasters. The kind of unpredictability of nature being filtered through this idea that, uh, uh, you know, these were spaces to be conquered. These were forces that were morally opposed to the providential uh, mission that Spaniards had to carry forward in the spirit of this reconquest. And part of what the book tries to do in terms of tracing these narratives is to locate them in various contexts, first across the Atlantic, upon when missionaries... And chroniclers first arrive to the Caribbean. uh, And then once they arrive to the mainland, how many of their preconceptions are changing by this immersion with grounded communities, by having to study and understand indigenous uh, realities, practices, rituals, worldviews. And then with Acosta, we get back, we come back full circle to the kind of Spanish thinker speaking back to Europe, but this time speaking from the new world.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about about the relationship between science and empire in early modern thought and how it relates to scholarship today, particularly since you mentioned in, in environmental ethics, but, but more widely in, in politics. So, you know, you've written this book that really helps us understand how inherited natural elements and themes that these very different people bring over. They have a conception of colonization. It can it can, uh, as in Dorodino um, de uh, is is more about about Satan and and that allows him to dehumanize indigenous peoples mm-hmm. through this kind of moral framework in a way that's very, very different from somebody like Francisco Hernandez who who is, is is thinking is is thinking about this somewhat differently so mm-hmm. so you're really trying to show this kind of variety but ultimately showing that in all of these cases natural history is threaded through uh, the understanding of empire the understanding of who is a human the understanding of what is civilization so how should we think uh, either in terms of more narrowly environmental ethics or more widely contemporary politics like what how does this book help us um, have a, a new a newer lens for for looking at uh, at our world mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I
0: don't know if this is the best answer,
1: because
0: <laughs> uh, definitely a among uh, <laughs> definitely, because I want to I want to kind of acknowledge uh, some of the really great work that say um, some of my colleagues in, in the sort of subfield of um, environmental political thought are doing uh, in thinking through how logics of colonization and domination uh, still. Retain force uh, through, for instance, uh, our ongoing addiction to oil and to plastic and to various facets of kind of a modern industrialized uh, technological late capitalist society, Uh, I think there is amazing work, for instance, uh, uh, looking at how indigenous communities um, across arc- the Arctic sort of circle, uh, uh, where we would see sort of what some people call the front lines of climate change, right? And kind of how, as scholars, we can create kind of collaborative work and do that. And that's great. And I, and I really want to create space and acknowledge for those things. And um, I don't want to pretend that as a historian of political thought, the kind of work that I'm interested in doing can aspire to that. But one thing I think uh, I certainly, or this kind of work can certainly kind of prepare us to better do is to kind of acknowledge the longstanding traditions of of knowledge production that precede what we would sort of consider to be the canon of political theory, right? Um, That when John Locke writes, once upon a time, all of the world was America, the, the sort of literary move there is not just uh, erasure it's not just oh you know uh, it's a eurocentric conception of what counts as theory or what counts as civilization um, it's also kind of a rhetorical a rhetorical move to delocate who gets to produce knowledge about these things and precisely re- recreate this kind of hierarchy of where someone is speaking from that's where kind of the real the real source of knowledge is and what i think that means on the ground for political theorists i think it is moving away um, despite uncomfortably from the evident seats of where power resides sometimes to kind of where power sort of is exercised in other locations. I had another um, uh, you know, faculty member many years ago when I was a student tell me that he was tired of hearing about the other. He wanted to hear about how dominators like on the ground, right, like the logics that they operated under and precisely the ones that did it far away from like the imperial capitals or like the places where the most refined, uh, uh, um, the refined artifacts of of knowledge uh, would be produced. Um, because when where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right, is where uh, we find some of the most immediate politics about whose knowledge gets used and for what purposes. Right. And so but I do think this question about um, in, in environmental ethics, especially, I think, is, is really central for us um, in the West and kind of the industrialized North, especially as universities are kind of dealing with these questions about um, uh, whose land do the many kind of large universities that we many of us work in, uh, whose whose lands are these? Where do they belong? But also questions about divestment from fossil fuel production. Right, I'm staring out my window here at the uh, at the coal-fired power plant that you know powers uh, the entire um the entirety of Virginia Tech's campus and in kind of part of the town of Blacksburg. So on on one end of my window I see the nice uh, the beautiful Appalachian Blue Ridge Mountains, and on the other end I see them burning up into kind of smoke right uh, And you know yeah oh maybe those maybe that coal comes from somewhere else. but this kind of sense that uh, the histories that we have are literally being burned up right before our very eyes isn't just related to kind of coal. Uh, it's very much related to I think these previous encounters and moments of um, accommodation of synthesis of transformation, of translation that get lost, because doing that kind of historical work is really difficult and it's really time consuming. So I don't blame anybody who's a climate change scholar for instance, who wants, to, uh, who wants to emphasize the urgency of the kind of research that we do. And yet at the same time as a historian of ideas, I find myself wanting to dig in more into the formative moments and encounters that maybe didn't lead us to where we are in a kind of path dependent fashion, but certainly formative encounters that we've since repressed or kind of brushed away from our collective memory that could give us some insight, could give us, I think, a bit of a different sense of what do we do with this information? How do we learn how to live better or live differently from what we're currently what we're currently facing?
1: Your book also made me reflect on science and democracy, um, in the context of the United States right now, this is not the case in the places that everyone is listening uh, to this podcast from. But here, it seems like we have had a more and more contentious relationship between politics, d- democratic politics, and and science. And it's interesting to think back to the 16th and then the 17th and even the 18th centuries, uh, in in which there was more of an acceptance. Of natural history as part of the project of politics. Or perhaps that these polymaths who assumed that they should know these many things, including religion, uh, did not did not disentangle them in the same ways that we, we seem to be disentangling now. We seem to be very suspicious of science. And I and I wondered what the View uh, and this is a big question, but you know, mm-hmm. within imperial, in, imperial Spain, what what was the view of science, and and did was there this kind of um, suspicion from those who primarily thought of themselves from a spirit define themselves spiritually in terms of science? To what extent did they see the conflict between what they might learn from the natural world
0: mm-hmm. and how that
1: might contradict what they? thought they were supposed to find given the, the moral world that they, moral tenets that they'd been taught through the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, my response
0: is going to sound a little counterintuitive, especially because I think of caricatures uh, that, you know, popular film and media have made of, of some of the most prominent kind of monarchs of the first, you know, hundred plus years of the Spanish empire. Um, you know, Philip II was an incredible devotee and, and, and supporter of uh, empirical inquiry and what we would call the sciences uh, in the New World and in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, it's important to add that a lot of that was because of an interest that he had in, in obscurantism, right, and in, in kind of now defunct practices like alchemy, right? Uh, but alongside things like alchemy and, uh, again, demonology as a concern of, of, of the Inquisition, um, we saw throughout the 16th century a, a profound devotion for both material reasons, but also for theological reasons to documenting the extent of what we would call or what they might call a God's presence on the planet. Right. Uh, there was an emb- at least an embryonic sense of how empirical inquiry, if we use that terminology uh, for science not only served for the purposes of say documenting flora fauna and potential medicines that could be extracted from them but also for cartography also for the visualization of natural resources spread out over what at the time might not yet have been perceived as a finite planet but definitely a sense in which like there's stuff out there and we need to kind of figure out how much of it is out there and how we could use it and so yeah you could have and you did have massive deforestation across iberia and a, a a and massive extraction of silver from like uh from the first mines that were created um across the spanish empire a but you also had massive cultivation of different plants and and and, and animals uh, for the purposes of trying to to diversify the economic interests of the, of the empire right like and that's sort of the part that i think um we're a bit more familiar with when it comes to kind of science, right? In our kind of current context, science as an enterprise that either, you know, serves state interests or at the very least science for science's sake that we regard as important because that kind of trial and error method allows us to, well, to cure diseases, allows us to figure out the, the the limits of the human body. And it allows us basically to exercise our imaginations without fear, right? Uh, At the end of the day, a lot of the pursuit of, of science is, Uh, to be able to pursue and push knowledge to kind of the limits of of what's allowable. And yet we still have debates even in the 21st century over what's allowable for science's sake, right? Whether we're talking about embryos or whether we're talking about just human experimentation or animal experimentation, just right? Um, But I think there's also kind of another dimension to this question that's really important. And that is the sense that um, because intellectuals of the 16th or the 17th century were religious, that somehow we can't really include them in our history of science, right? Uh, we can't really include them as part of our histories of enlightenment or our histories of sort of modernization, because how on earth could the zealous priest, right, have anything to do with kind of the laboratory, you know, mindset that... um that we envision kind of science to do. And, and, I, and I think that's a really good empirical question, right? Like how on earth could the mission, could the, could the priest uh, and the lab technician sort of, what do they have in common, right? But the one figure that we tend to forget in that equation is sort of, you know, the field guide or the ecologist or the person that has to kind of go out there and bring these two worlds together, right? Like, so right now I'm, I'm working for, as part of a, of a kind of ongoing project, um, I'm working through a brilliant book by the historian um, Sarah Rivett called The Science of the Soul in Colonial New England. And this book is, is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's a decade old now, but it's new to me. Um, where part of what the argument that she makes there is similar to kind of mine. It's like because folks had a particular uh, uh, puritanical or kind of provincial, provincial uh, conception of what role America or colonial New England kind of played in the world doesn't mean that they can't fit into kind of the bigger questions around enlightenment that are central to our histories of ideas and our histories of politics. And that indeed, and precisely what some folks would describe as uh, marginal contexts, peripheral contexts like the Americas, uh, more than just being a laboratory for political or intellectual ideals, they are the empirical field site from which, many of the ideals of political theory and of political governance that were play out in Europe, where they kind of came from to begin with, right? They weren't refined in the kind of conceptual language that a Locke gives us or a Bacon gives us, or for that matter, uh, a Descartes or a Newton would give us. And yet there are droves uh, uh, and small platoons of people who are tasked with these scientific exercises, with illustrating, with collecting, with naming even um, uh, the objects of their investigations in order to be able to then do something with that data later.
1: So you mentioned this book that you're reading for a new project. So, uh, I'd love to close today finding out what is your next work. Um, and you know, what can we expect from a next article or book?
0: Well, I, 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 I hope, uh, I hope I can, I'm not jinxing myself here because I, I think like many of the listeners will, will, uh, will appreciate, right? The pandemic has made it really difficult, not just to uh, to go to places, but I think even to kind of carve away the time and like really think about um, what I want to do after a project like writing The New World. Uh, the initial kind of sketch of, of my current research is uh, to think about the question of racial hierarchy um, in the Spanish empire, moving away from the 16th century and, and the narratives of kind of, you know, great men and great kind of epic conquest to thinking about the role of women uh, intellectuals, and particularly women of color intellectuals, and the role that they played in um, the Catholic Church uh, across the Americas. Uh, Right now, um, the kind of pet title uh, for the project is uh, Savage Pasts, Baroque Futures. And I'm thinking a lot with the writings of women and, and indigenous peoples who, in crafting histories of the Americas up to, say, where they were, which is... More along the mid to late 1600s, they were also creating a kind of potential script for different cultures of knowledge production. Maybe not quite yet democratic cultures, but certainly cultures where women and indigenous figures could um, uh, could participate more openly. And the book or that project begins with uh, two two prominent figures. Um, one more prominent because of her incredible uh, prowess and and well known profile across uh, the Americas and Europe. Uh, Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, who was a uh, a Hieronymite sister, a Hieronymite nun, and participated actively in the debates of of her time in colonial Mexico and in Europe. Uh, And the other figure being um, the indigenous uh, Quechua historian um, Felipe Guamampoma de Ayala, who wrote a similarly sized massive thousand folio book, which was lost for almost 300 years. Uh, Kind of a long love letter to the king about how awful conditions were in colonial Peru that somehow gets dug up in 1903 Copenhagen in, in some archive. And, and I use these two figures precisely as counterpoints to think about the question of what does it mean to write the future? So, so in that sense, if writing the new world is about writing the past eh, eh, or the present, uh, my next project is thinking about what would it mean to write the future from the vantage point of colonial Latin America.
1: Well, I'm very excited uh, that this is your next project. I almost asked you some questions along this line. And so who knew that you would have had a remarkable answer, but the answer is going to be in your upcoming research. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, Moro Jose Caraccioli is written writing The New World, The Politics of Natural History in the Early Spanish Empire. It's from the University of Florida Press, published in 2020. And it's just been a delight to have him on the podcast. So thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much, Susan.